Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. This episode, featuring a new guest, an interesting perspective. A young friend of mine I've had many discussions with. I wish I had recorded them all. This one is uh, perhaps sort of an introduction. Uh, It takes us a little while to get going. It's a little meandering. I really enjoy speaking with him. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation and that it will be uh, considered kind of a teaser for more conversations to come. He has uh, requested that he go by the name of Charlotte Ann, which of course we will immediately recognize as not being the case in more than one way. Nevertheless, I respect that decision, and, uh, and so I am pleased to introduce Charlotte Ann in his first podcast appearance. Enjoy. <laughs> It seems like, you know, the whole gangster thing. Oh, yeah, like I do what I want. Yeah. I mean, oh, romanization. Someone someone told me an awesome joke uh, just recently. What's what's the difference between a hippie and a redneck? Okay, what's that? Ten years. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Interesting, yeah. I was like, yeah, well, it it all came up because I was talking about my kind of transition from like uh being very concerned about my uh you know uh food purchasing choices and the ethics of the foods i was buying and then trump got elected and i was just like you know what i'm poor and like i'm just gonna buy shit food because it doesn't make me feel that much worse like i just need to save some fucking money and like i don't think my ethical choices are gonna have any impact now that trump is president (laughs) i'm not sure they would have either uh beforehand right yeah but i was young and i was like oh it's totally cool that i like you know pay $50 a month for rent and I'll, you know, just dumpster most of my food and then pay like $35 for like olive oil that's organic that came from Palestine, you know, because that's like (laughs) fucking really ethical choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess there was this strange notion that somehow or another we'd be able to salvage this civilization by making good purchasing decisions. Right. Because basically freedom got whittled down to being nothing but about purchasing decisions. <laughs> right. It's the, the politics of money. And uh, and like, you know, the kind of like recycling, the, the dismal <laughs> outcome of the social revolutions, I think, put a real damper on the idea that people could take action and it would be like it would lead to a better world. Right. Or like even, you know. Even if you become communist, eventually you're still going to get roped back into the world economy and then you're going to be at a disadvantage, you know, like, you know. Uh, I guess there's that, that, yeah, you sort of be falling behind because it's all this gigantic competitive race to the bottom. <laughs> race right? to the bottom. So, so it's like you can, you can end up last right now or you could, you know, enter the fray and, and go for a run for a bit. And, and give your riches to the right person. Right. The world will be a better place. <laughs> That's yeah. the other thing, too, is that, you know, not just our individual purchasing decisions, but that somehow or another, if like money were spent on something, that it would solve the problem. Like if only government would just allocate the right amount of money to various programs. I mean, there's definitely a lot of truth to the idea that 
a lot of money is wasted, right? But the question as to whether or not you can solve a problem by allocating funds, I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm sure that there are some programs that are more effective than others. But in general, there is this notion that if we throw money at something, it will solve a problem. And that obviously isn't true. I don't know. I just I haven't seen the money thrown around in person. It's just talked about, so I can't speak from personal experience. <laughs> I mean, I'm way more on that side than the other side. Yeah. What's the other side? Or people are always like telling me to like write, try to get a grant, you know? And right. Like, Does that actually like work <laughs> out for people? Like everyone I know who's like gotten a grant is like, man, I couldn't do anything that I wanted because I was on their program. As soon as I, you know, got the money, and then they, you know, they paid fifteen percent of my project, but then they like called all the shots on like you know how I was going to operate. I'm thinking mostly like people who got greenhouse, you know, right. help and right. Um, it's like, okay, this is how you're going to do it. And, you know, this is the protocol. And then I don't know exactly what those farmers wanted to do that was so different than the program, but that was the general, general vibe I got. <laughs> well, that is also another thing that I think we're seeing kind of uh, the uh, byproduct of is the distance between the experts and the people who are in the field, you know? And, and I guess, like, both sides have their valid points but it does seem that unless you spend a lot of time in the field the expertise tends to become very theoretical and not particularly grounded right and we can see that happening you know from everything agriculture to foreign policy you know right. uh, there are a lot of ivory towers where people have careers that are very well paid that come up with policy uh, recommendations that are followed for many, many years that produce disastrous results for most of us. We're going to have uh, a lot of dog <laughs> background. It's God. like, uh, it's great though, because it's like, you, I mean, you're talking about some juicy stuff, and then there's like the sound of salivation. Yeah, the, the top down or bottom up. It's like, it seems like you got to find some middle ground because. Because on the same token, it's like the people on the ground oftentimes are so delusional about, you know, the responsibilities of, of the top guys making the decision is like as bad as their decision making is. They also, you know, it's the distance creates a dynamic where both parties are, are you know, understanding of what each other do is just like so full of projections that may or may, may not be sound. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, obviously there are periods of time where people who are accustomed to doing things a certain way are kind of out of step with what's going on. So you could say that there is a tendency on the ground to kind of go with inertia and just do things the way that they've been done. Right. Which has a set of problems in and of itself. But, you know, quite often these systems are set up for good reasons. So, uh -huh. you know, you tamper with that stuff at your peril, but... It does seem like quite often the newfangled way of going about doing things just doesn't turn out to be quite as awesome as it was presented to be. But there are, you know, sort of 
inexorable forces at play in history that keep changing things, changing the way things are done. And quite often they're for reasons that have nothing to do with what the concern is on the ground. Right. I mean, it's like, uh, it's almost like economic growth. If you're not changing, you're, you're going to get lost in the sands of time. Like if you're not growing, then you're like failing. <laughs> but so much of that also, I think, is based on on basically a rapacious model because the whole economic engine is this, you know, eating away at the earth and away at the systems, the natural systems that had produced things in the past without all this technical interference. But now we're increasingly technically interfering with the basic mechanism of life in order to I guess what meet quotas or kind of ward off potential uh, diseases and and uh, crop damage or um, you know you have a, a I think basically domesticated species become weaker. Would you say that that's basically true? You know, I got to say I'm I'm actually hung up on the aesthetics of the word rapacious because <laughs> I don't hear it spoken out loud, and it's like such a beautiful manifestation of such like a violent like rape you know it's just like like <clears throat> it's very curt like verbal experience but rapacious is it's almost like gracious or like huh. this i don't know it just was so sensual when you threw it out there that i, st- I just was like well i mean we t- we do word. talk about <laughs> the earth as being the great mother right <laughs> right and so you know I mean, some people do just come out and say the rape of the earth, and I think that's a pretty accurate metaphor, you could say. Right. Actually, it's funny because, yeah, rape uh, is a a, um, mythological uh, dynamic. I was just reading about this morning. uh, The book I'm reading is uh, Liz Green's um, Astrology of Fate, Hmm. and uh, she's, she's talking about the traditional deities of the underworld in, in further back in ancient Greece are almost completely feminine. And then there's kind of this transition to like, you know, Hades becomes the Lord of the underworld. But even, you know, in that transition, he's more of like a servant to these like uh, uh, female underworld deities, like uh, Moira, triple face Hecate and, but the story of the the rape thing is the, uh, you know, I guess, uh, in a lot of renditions of of uh, the Greek myth, Hades only comes to the surface twice uh, during his unending life. Hmm. That's still continuing. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> but uh, probably one of those is um, he sees the daughter of Demeter. Uh, Persephone and he wants to claim her as his wife and the event that precipitates his entrance into the upper world and the rape and abduction of Persephone is uh, she picks a flower. Huh. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the flower was, but that uh, the claim of the, uh, the author is that, you know, this small act of desire and taking is what elicits this, you know, it's in her taking of the ground, the ground is responding and rapes and abducts her. And, and the, the author's perspective is that there is some part of uh, Persephone, uh, maybe unconscious, that's actually, you know, calling this uh, experience to her. 
And in the Smith, you know, he abducts her and then she becomes the queen of the underworld. But then Demeter uh, becomes so upset that she creates winter and it's unending. And then the gods end up brokering a deal where Penelope spends half the year underground with Hades and then, or maybe it's a third and two thirds above. And that's kind of like the, the beginning of the story of like w- why seasons, winter is. Yeah. And, but it's, uh, there's a little like recapitulation of Eve there, kind of the eating of the forbidden fruit, right. bringing about evil in some way. Right. right. Oh shit, man. And this is, this is going to get real tangential. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, uh, also just uh, visited the Wikipedia page. <laughs> summarizing the uh, apocryphon of uh, I'm probably butchering that word pronunciation <laughs> of uh, John, which is like a or the uh, Gnostic, one of the, yeah, the Nagamati yeah. texts. And yeah. uh, um, okay, so there's the original, the all in all spirit, the holy monad, which you know, like the aesthetics of the word are like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a math word to me. But but actually, it's, it seems genius because it's like, you know, mon as mono mm-hmm. is one. And then ad is like the sum of all things. It's like the one that is the sum of all things. It's like the most appropriate word you could mm-hmm. use for the all in all, you know, spirit of all things. And then, and then uh, it's like that uh, creature or the spirit of all things uh, self-impregnates itself, gives birth to uh, Sophia, the... Uh, goddess of wisdom or deity of wisdom. And then she uh, begets a a son of her own without a male consort or acknowledgement uh, from the Holy Monad. And she creates this character, uh, Yaltabaev. Again, probably mm. killing the pronunciation. but um, And this thing's like a serpent with a, a lion's head. And... Uh, it's, uh, you know, it has a shred of light uh, that's been passed down from Sophia that's like of the holy monad, but um, she conceals them and she, uh, I don't know if it's her or the Yalta Bayoth or like maybe in cahoots, they make this like uh, false underground reality and he kind of like ends up playing his own holy monad thing where he creates his own world and all his little demons and very much like the Satan kind of story. Right. Um, but that at some point, Sophia realizes that she, she needs to like fess up and she tells the holy monad what's going on. And then he like, you know, uh, speaks, speaks some, some wisdom blows his breath on the, the waters that are the ceiling of this false underworld. Huh. And, uh, in that, um, the Yalto Bayoth and his demonic minions see this and they're terrified, but at the same time they're inspired and they try to uh, create a reflection of this powerful breath they experience on the, the waters of their world. And okay, this is seeming like really tangential, but it gets back to, uh, seems like exactly what's happened here on earth in a way. Well, when I was reading it, I was like, <laughs> man, this is like the original <laughs> matrix, you know, yeah, that's right. Like it's yeah. the false, you know, digital world reality. And, uh, and within that reality is, you know, I don't know if there's like two gardens of Edens, but in this story, uh, which 
seems like it was a revelation someone brought back from like a really hardcore psychedelic trip or something like that. Hmm. Um, or maybe God was just talking to him normal, but, uh, that Yalto Bayoth creates this, uh, false garden of Eden and that it's actually Christ who facilitates the, the act of Eve. It's either Christ is the embodiment of Eve that, uh, allows for Adam to pick of the, the tree of, of knowledge. Hmm. And, uh, in a sense, I, I got the impression that like the Christ in this, uh, storyline, um, like a lot of other storylines, he's the, the, the conduit between these worlds of false and true. Hmm. And that he's like the connecting force and that, yeah, it was just, you know, super, you know, meta because, hmm. you know, it seems like, okay, so Christ is what, you know, is responsible for the, the act of sin that creates original sin. But, you know, maybe it's through, you know, maybe this version of, of the, or this holy story is that like, oh, sin is actually the vehicle for understanding what is good and evil. And that it's like you can't actually have the experience of understanding knowledge until you just go there huh. almost and you need assistance. <laughs> uh, again, I could be like, this is just like a rough Wikipedia read. Uh, I could be totally like skewing this and like reinventing it for my own. Uh, well, I mean, it seems like so much yeah. of this ancient, I, we could call it ancient poetry, I think, right, oh, is yeah. so open to interpretation. So what else are you going to do? Is there an authoritative way of envisioning any of these texts? I mean, even within the uh, canon of the of the sanctioned texts of the Bible, right? Right. The Testaments, there's so much interpretation so I mean, that's what we do when we when we're looking at this ancient these messages from the ancient world. That's basically what we're getting. We're getting messages from the ancient world, people who are thinking and seeing things and and we're trying to relate to them because we're an offshoot of right. of all of that. And there's an, a lot of resonance in what you're talking about. It seems like the idea that at this earliest point, I mean, one of the first things that strikes me is the idea that uh, Sophia would have an offspring that she would protect and hide, right. which is, I think, a very maternal instinct, right? Right. Or, or even, uh, yeah, even maternal beyond like the, the feminine experience, but like, you know, the, the experience of the creator, you know, is like anything that one creates is like, you know has some level of, of sacred and, and, and deserving of protection or. Well, it's also interesting that if she's the avatar of wisdom, that wisdom would have the tendency to produce these false worlds. Right. Yeah. That seemed like one of the really loaded, uh, <laughs> kind of details of it was that <laughs> wisdom in its own right is fallible. You know, yeah. it's like, it's not just knowledge that needs guidance, but like even wisdom, uh, has its moments of, uh, Poor judgment. <laughs> well, in a way, it, you could say that wisdom, I mean, I, the way I would view it, astrologically speaking, would be the the tension between Sagittarius and Gemini, right? Ooh, yeah, yeah. The knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, like like basically the the knowledge and wisdom require that there be some kind of consistent story, but there is underlying everything an engine of inconsistency, 
that that you know in a certain sense the basic fabric of existence is outside of wisdom's purview but wisdom is the best that we can do in terms of being able to get some kind of a grip on it right but yeah by following the the path of let's say knowledge you know because wisdom i guess would i think incorporate both you know you would see it's like you have to have the knowledge to formulate a bigger picture yeah or some level of knowledge but then that's maybe that's the fallacy is like you know if you don't have enough details your big picture is pretty skewed but if you have too many details and you can't quite make a big picture and you know it's that balancing act between the two that's true yep and, uh, but then there's also just the the fundamental kind of limit of knowledge the 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 barriers to perception and understanding that are kind of hard coded into the universe i mean We've done a pretty splendid job, I guess, here on planet Earth of being able to probe the microcosmic and the macrocosmic. But in reality, like we have just the slightest understanding right. of what those domains are really about. We're like, we really got this figured out uh, and we're just going to have to keep uh, spending like, uh, you know, 40 plus hours a week sitting in this room, looking at this screen, continue to flesh out all these details <laughs> so we can really live like in the best way. <laughs> right. You know, we need more of that. You know, when we hit 60, maybe we'll go home and just stay in that room with the screen. And well, that describes the walks. condition of, of <laughs> what's the name of the, of the uh, offspring of Sophia? Bafofet? Yalto Beoth. Yalto Beoth. Bafofet is another devil name, right? Or, uh, Yalto Beoth? Yalto Beoth. Okay. Like Y-A- well, I mean, T-A. a protected child, right, will always create their own world. Oh, shit. This is right? like an analogy for me as a... <laughs> The only child for the first seven years of my life. Huh. <laughs> well, Shit, I didn't think about that one. <laughs> Damn, wasn't gonna yeah, get personal. No. But. I also love the you know the imagery too of the uh, the lion's head with the snake's body. Mm. It's kind of like, especially the lion's head. You know, seems like the embodiment of ego. Huh. But then the the snake well, is this like primal, instinctive grounding. You know, and then also like I don't know why I just think of snake. I just think of rivers and, huh. and like the waters of life. And well, and then you also have the uh, you also have the serpent of the Garden of Eden again, right? You know, and and that whole question. I mean, it's very disturbing to think of uh, that as being in some way or another a manifestation of Christ. But there is this concept of Lucifer, which means the light bearer, right? Right. Who was supposedly the favored one of the favorite angels of let's say the monad if you like right right and and that he you know the the interesting thing the other thing that was really resonant in what you said of this story is when god breathed this wind let's say over the false world that everyone within it was terrified and and at the same time inspired to kind of emulate which is an exact parallel to what Rudolf Steiner says about the Luciferian impulse, that the Luciferian impulse is kind of the impulse of the ancient civilizations where there was an effort on, uh, on the part of societies, collective, to become as divine as possible, that we were going to reach. It's very much like the story of the Tower of Babel, that we were going to become as divine as, as 
gods. Most high. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so, and, and it was that hubris and arrogance that, that created the, the, let's say the tragedies that, that happened as, you know, as a result, really. I, I think you could point to that painting that you were just showing me. What's the name of the artist? Uh, Piero della Francesca. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, a painting of the flogging of Christ, right? Right. And but it's it's interesting that it is it's like a the uh, the structural dynamic of the painting is like you know you you've got almost two sides of the painting and right and the flagellation is like recessed and like background yeah to this like seemingly casual you know, phys- philosophical or business interaction going on between the three guys in the front, like right. just an average day. You know? So the flogging is, is actually rendered in a lot less detail. And the, and the three, there are three figures who are well-dressed, you could right. say. They're I almost guess, right? like fashion. And they're, they're the outside <laughs> of the little room that the flogging is taking place in. Uh-huh. So, it, it, the the room where the flogging is taking place is sort of dim. It's a little more right. You know, despite the it, fact that it's like this white marble room, it's like in the dark in a way. Yeah. Well, it's not out in the sun, right? Right. So there's that realism to it, but it also seems to be symbolically suggesting that this is something that is happening but isn't really being paid attention to. Right, and it's also and, uh, almost secondary to the the architecture of the. The pillars and the right, the like religious structure per se, <laughs> which is exactly how societies behave. <laughs> totally, I mean, it's they like the, they always ignore their uh, injustices and tend to, you know, de-emphasize the significance of things that would portray them in a negative light, and focus on you know nice clothes and uh and look at the beautiful architecture that you know and kind of keeping busy with that stuff like that's what we're really doing here is we're we're building nice places within which terrible things occur (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's interesting when you're talking about the uh the you know the breath being breathed on the the false underworld and and that combination of terror and inspiration you know just just the way you kind of recapitulated it uh you know just it reminds me of my own experience i mean you know here we are living out in uh you know the boonies in southern oregon and um you know it's peaceful and stuff I, i'm not having like a uh, life or death crises every day like i used to when i lived in in new york city and but there is a strange uh you know it's like the the terrifying dynamics of the human politics not being like the forefront of your world. And then also like, you know, your whole environment is this like human architecture with a few token trees, you know. Uh, but there's, there's something about the, you know, what I feel to be this like horribly oppressive environment and nature. And then like all these, you know, tormented humans stacked on top of each other that for some reason that forces the light out of me or, you know, I don't know if you can call it light, but forces me to be creative because it's like a survival instinct of some kind that like, I don't quite, I don't, I don't have that like, uh, 
or I don't often experience that like crisis. Like you gotta fucking, you know, digest this and spit it out in some better way or like, or just spit the evil out so you can like hear it. And it's not inside of you, <laughs> you know, not that everything in the city's evil, but right. There's but, a lot of so you're saying that you don't feel that same, uh, urgency out here. Right. Because yeah. it's not, you know, you, you know, there's humans out. We still live in a, you know, it's not like we're in old growth forests. <laughs> right. uh, there's not a whole lot of that left, but right. you know, there's way more trees than people. Uh, there's, there's definitely like, uh, you know, it's like, the land's only been raped here since like the 1850s <laughs> right. instead of like the 1600s. <laughs> right. And the the human impact doesn't seem, you know, there, there's a lot of aspects of. Like, it's still pretty significant. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's sad. Very wide. It's more widespread than impact. one would think. When I first moved to Oregon, I thought that I was moving to a like untouched wilderness. Right. You know? <laughs> and it took only a few months for me to realize, well, hmm. Everything's been logged. Yeah, least once. it's all. It was pretty rough. <laughs> and there's, you know, companies who have laid claim to, oh, and the, you know, it's all carved up. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's all. dynamic here. Yeah, the mining insane. goes way back. And, yep. Like just the amount of topsoil they blew all over the place and sent down into the ocean and. Yep. It's like centuries of nutrients. And you see glory holes all over the place out in the <laughs> but woods But, like, here. even those, like, you know, rocks are fucking beautiful, you know. They're not, it's like, true. concrete squares that all look the same. That's true. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> even the remains of the, like, hydraulic mining is, like, still has some element of, like, you know, it's... It's not as beautiful as like the topsoil with the life it would have had, but it's like, <laughs> you know, the underside of nature is pretty, pretty inspiring too. And That's absolutely true. Zen and yeah, you know, we didn't really need to focus on it, but now that it's here, I mean, well, there is well something about it. even seeing like, you know, how would you say this? Like industrial processes that deal with raw materials. There's something about it, it's like, oh wow, you know, it, you're getting down to some kind of base reality there, even though some of the byproducts of that can be really horrible. And destructive. There's something fascinating about it. But, you know, this whole like urban centric civilization now, like one of the things that's struck me recently is so many of these cities now are having the hardest time. You know, the, the cities are really, it seems, becoming even just in the United States, we see uh, places like L.A., I mean, particularly on the West Coast, we've got L.A., San Francisco, and Seattle as being these. Uh, well, Portland's getting pretty big, too. Man. And Don't Portland, too. Portland. And yeah, <laughs> it, but having serious, serious problems with, you know, homelessness and uh, just sort of urban decay, I guess you'd say. There right. seems to be an awful lot of decay in the cities. I don't know. Uh, I mean, a lot of people on the right will say, well, that's because they're Democrat-run cities. And I don't know how many, like, medium-sized cities are seeing the same kind of thing. I mean, you know, Medford's always been a shithole, so it's kind of hard to Methford. judge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, whether it's getting for, worse or not. Meth, or I almost feel bad for Medford because they get so much shit. And, I mean, it's Grants true. Pass, too, but Grants Pass is actually growing on me where I'd rather go there than Medford. Just Hell yeah. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's, like... Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about like there are places in the world where things are hard, but still the people have some spirit left. And it feels like oh. it's like in Medford, 
people's it's spirits. It's less redneck. It's less redneck in Medford? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Or it's like more working class redneck, whereas like Grants Pass is more like Oregonian redneck. Like, Yeah. No, that's just my life. Grants Pass seems to have more like kind of, it feels a little more Woodsy. like, yeah, and, and some kind of roots. There's some kind of roots and some spirit there that's still like, like alive. Or maybe but, Medford being the, the seat of Southern Oregon after Jacksonville gave up the title. Maybe it's like more business oriented, whereas Grants Pass has, has had a little less of that or maybe more of the religious influence. I mean, I was just driving through Murphy uh, today and thinking about, oh, New Hope, you know, that's called that because like the church, you know. And, uh-huh, right. Or I imagine this may Probably, yeah. But, uh, and yeah, it's, sometimes I forget that like, oh, shit, yeah, no, the people who came out here, more, well, a lot of them were religious and like at least the organized ones who like set up, you know, the closest thing to public facilities <laughs> right early on and and i think it is uh, true that places that were more business oriented would tend to be less religious tolerant let's say or i mean it's easier to be a businessman if you don't have to abide by religious uh right. limitations <laughs> right totally. so no trip ups so, <laughs> yeah it's like you basically the the range of behaviors that you can engage in is wider right for better or worse so it would make sense that Medford would probably have more of that bigger city feel, you know. Right. But it's ironic, too, because it's like not, I don't know, when I, I'm used to the East Coast cities that are just so dense because they're, you know, engineered before the automobile. And it's like Medford is just so damn spread. I mean. Yeah, it's all, a sprawl. All the cities around here. I mean, they all just remind me of mountain towns because they kind of are. But, yeah. you know, my first. They all started as. Yeah. Uh, introduction to a mountain town would have been like you know places in colorado like breckenridge and uh-huh. uh you know i haven't spent a whole lot of time in colorado but it's like more of that feel than like you know west coast like city you know because it is that mountain thing and anyway so i'm just I'm just babbling about really <laughs> well, personal that's, takes. That's on, what you uh, do on a podcast, really. I mean, what 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 else do people do? Um, but babble. And we're living in Babylon, so it's appropriate to, to babble on and brabble on. <laughs> maybe that's what maybe that's what this podcast should be called. <laughs> babble on and babble on. Babylon, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think uh I think that overall sense of of uh I one of the things that I notice is living out here there's a sense of um losing like you're no longer going to be relevant with respect to what's going on in the in the sort of more dense population zones oh yeah the, and and it seems like cities have a tendency to change more quickly right and so the mindset of the people tends to go through these, you know, maybe not particularly deep, but still relatively significant changes. There's like more receptivity to the spirit of change almost. But it's also like whatever's going on, you have to remain relevant to it because you have to stay in the game. You can't afford to drop out of the game in a city, right? Right. I mean, I guess some people do, but it's, it's, it's a rough ride, right? Yeah. And so, and that's to some extent, I guess, what explains the homeless situation. There's a bunch of people who dropped out of the game, you know. Couldn't get and, back up. And, 
Yeah, it's well, they they still ran to nature, but the, all they could find was the like little triangle and the off ramp. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. But it, the hell, hell, there's still nature there, and it's like it's that's true. Probably speaking to them, you know, when you know, I gotta say my son, just you know, of course, jumping right into alcohol problems, but like, yeah, you know, it's like there's something really humbling when you're like fucking kneeling on the ground vomiting, and you're like, shit, how often do I? fucking kneel down and have like all four arms on the ground and like <laughs> this is one of the earthiest connections i got and like man some people do this like at least once a week wow yeah, a lot i mean a lot of people that's you know trying to get by in those little little triangle woods in the cities and i was friends with a homeless guy in new york you know and and he uh he didn't find a little green spot, but he had a pretty significant amount of stuff that people had given him that he would lay out on the pavement and sell, like magazines and CDs and odds and ends, whatever, you know? And he was. Entertainment goods. Was that? Entertainment goods. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of, yeah, books and whatever. And he was a super friendly, talkative, really big guy. Big. Big personality. Big guy, big personality, big. and physically big. Uh-huh. And, uh, he said that at some point he just made a choice that he'd rather do this than, you know, keep keep going in the rat race, basically. You right. Know? And uh, it was obviously a rough life, but but he did genuinely seem to kind of enjoy that decision. You know, I think that's probably not true for many, but I don't think there's a lot of people who enjoy the decisions whether they're in the rat race or not, you know? It seems like it's pretty rough both ways. So, right in a way, you know, it's like physically rough. Is is like I don't know. It's just it's, it's, I feel like there's an element of like visceral struggle that's like you know when you rise above it or you know get past it or even when you're in it and not above it. It's just it's so more real. Yeah. And like you're you, you feel more like the the hero trying to pull out of something or And it's know. also, you know, in that kind of an instance, it's your choice. You're right. You know, you're making a decision to deal with hardship so that you're, you know, at least on some level free. Because otherwise you're just doing someone else's shit. Right. You're just following orders. Right. And sometimes and, those orders are just like so confusingly you know, undertones and uh, expectations that are never like really vocalized fully. And there's that like anxiety in there too of like, okay, I'm supposed to be doing something, but it's not clear. And here, okay, I'm contributing to the collective. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. I'm achieving. I'm productive. Productive's good. Yeah. We got to, got to make more of the you know, good it's, stuff. It's, a, it's like you're dealing with a mind fuck. That's basically what it is. It's like most jobs have a huge component of mind fuck involved. Yeah. Existentialism. And, yeah. And like the power play dynamics and all this kind of hierarchy pecking order and, you know, competition and the sort of frenemy kind of things that end up, you know, being a big influencing thing as to whether or not you're going to get that next step up the ladder. Well, you or need a rival <laughs> in order to grow. That's that's like the well. There's there's the that myth, too. Right? You know, is it a myth? I don't know. I mean, Maybe I'm not it's sure. real. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't know. For some reason, the thing that jumps to mind is that whole story of uh, of uh, what does Enki do? And uh, it's it's a story of uh, a king and a wild man, 
and they have this uh, this fight basically, and I think they're basically unable to defeat each other, and so they become the best of friends, and they go adventuring around the world, causing causing all kinds of mayhem, and it's a it's a story kind of of the eventual taming of the wild man. I think Enkidu is the wild man, if I remember correctly. Enkidu. Um, Enkidu is kind of wild. Yeah. I've heard of Enki, but I haven't heard of Enkidu. But even back then, so this is an ancient, ancient story where you're talking about kind of like the 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 man of the city and the man of the of nature, you know? And and as as being a fundamental rivalry. You know? Right. But even yeah. at that point, it was like urbanization was taking off and like the wild man was losing his opportunities to embrace the wildness. And so right. there's this constant compromise that kind of happens. But but like no matter how urban things get, there will always be some element of the wild man, even if he's just like, you know, slinging magazines on the sidewalk that people give him. Well, that's the weird thing about <laughs> about the time that we're living in now is like. The cities seem to be, I don't know whether it's uh, realistic to say that what we're seeing here on the West Coast is something that is happening globally, but I know that, you know, anyone, a lot of people who can are getting the hell out of the big cities, right? right? And so a lot of the people who are most city-oriented are getting out of the cities and going to either like smaller cities or there's this sort of... You know, I guess a lot of business now can just be done online. Everyone's discovered like, hey, you can, you know, get therapy done online. You can go to school online. You can have meetings online instead of traveling. It's like, why did we need to have these office buildings and all be crammed into cities? What's the point? So the cities in some way seem like they're becoming increasingly irrelevant. I don't know whether that's like a long-term trend or not, but it seems quite likely. It would make sense, particularly if, you know, the pandemic goes on forever. You know, the the denser populations are going to become ever more of a liability. And so in that sense, you know, we're going to see a very bizarre kind of the I mean, we've already had this continual um, influx of essentially urbanites into, let's say, the wildland urban interface, you know, basically Uh moving further and further out into the country. Those who are successful quite often will try to find a piece of land out there somewhere. And so there's more and more development of the of the f- forefront of the frontiers of of rural areas from the mindset of the people who are from the cities. Oh yeah. You know? And and in a way I'm I'm like a a, a transplant from an urban environment basically we're we're both urban refugees yeah we're urban refugees (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like man what the fuck is real right uh trees trees are real water real creeks what you just said there i think that that actually is kind of the impetus for my whole life like what the fuck is real totally what the fuck is real that was like the big question right you know and i kept getting disappointed with like the things that i had hung my hat on and thinking of oh yeah this is the real shit this is it yeah or in my experience they usually don't feel very human when you get the like this is real moment you know it's like usually the human aspect is at least like kind of a minor element you know well that that brings into question the extent to which humanity uh, belongs on this planet <laughs> <laughs> oh shit are we, we gonna segue into some alien theory <laughs> oh i don't know i mean everyone knows uh, that it's yeah, been well treaded yeah there's enough podcasts but 
but you know, there is a, I guess in a way that kind of gets back to this, uh, false world construction type of thing. I mean, on a certain level, you could say it's impossible for society to not construct a false world. Because basically every abstraction is a reduction of the reality of the world. But, you know, or along the same lines, it's like it really happened. There's really a concrete jungle there now. That's true. And like, it's but funny, the... too, you brought up the concept of like the urban decay. And for me, that actually, you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, in between army bases and the suburbs more or less uh until i went to college and then you know moved to new york city kind of on a whim probably mostly based on listening to the velvet underground <laughs> i was like oh this is where it's happening so man. What, when did but, you get uh, there oh well i got there post 9 11 so it was so a velvet complete, underground complete like, state at that point yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was like man if you want like drugs and horrors you better you know look pretty hard or you know start looking online <laughs> Well, you just, (laughs) it's all still there, but it's like, you can't just like, you know, go to Times Square and like expect to find that kind of stuff. Right. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, the, the oppressiveness of the city environment was more the, like the cleanup feel to me. Of course, you know, I have the privilege of being like a, a a taller, uh, male who's like, you know, not so worried about getting assaulted, walking on the sidewalk at night alone and, um, but, the it was more the st- sterility and the, you know, pristine cleanliness that I found to be oppressive. And I actually found that the urban decay was like, all right, nature's always going to win in the end. Right. Concrete cracks and crumbles. Moss will always grow. Right. You know, the, the algae and all that shit that stinks in the subway is, it's yeah, life. Like, it well, might be like all of their perfection but, can't mask any of that stuff. Yeah. And, and it seems like there's something <laughs> when when things get to that level where it's all metal and glass and everyone's shoes are spotless and you know they're they're just they're even when they're dining it kind of looks like everything is neat and tidy like that that's when things are really going to fall apart yeah it's but even so those, far away from what's real but even those five star restaurants have like about the same amount of rats in the basement where they keep all the food as like the like you know cheapo uh, dollar slice on the corner (laughs) i mean i can't speak to that directly and i've heard some nightmarish stories about some of the things that were going on down the village for instance it's like the but just the facade of cleanliness is pretty Pretty spectacular. Well, almost every restaurant is a facade. That's basically what you're walking into. I mean, literally, that's what facade means, right? It's like I don't a know. Storefront, more or less. Right? Yeah, I guess that's right. It's yeah. like architectural, uh, like it's the, the side that's like kind of presented as like the the prime viewing side of a yep. structure. Oh man, we're just getting right back to the roots of words. <laughs> That's what it always comes down to. I mean, we can't. You can't really talk about anything if you're not talking about words, because if you just start a conversation, you don't examine the words you're using and the terms, and you know what the resonances are for you and what the resonances are through history. Then, I mean, how can you really have a conversation now, particularly in a world where we've gotten so confused about the words, right? And the words are slowly you know, like losing their meaning right in front of our eyes. Totally. You know? So we have to examine words and terms i think yeah 
It's really important. You were talking about before we started recording the word chorus. Oh yeah, the, uh, <laughs> tracing it back to the Greek. Uh, again, my pronunciation's horrible, but chorodia, uh, um, with that like hard H sound in the beginning, and then it's actually like a reference to the uh, kind of pagan circle dances that would incorporate the singing, um, you know, in, in festivals and celebrations, and that you know it's it's it's, it's funny to think too of like you know. Gregorian chorus where like you've transitioned to a culture where like dancing is like the that's that's an activity of the devil you know and but hmm. but we're still going to stand in a circle and sing right. and there's still a circle element of uh, uh, a lot of those practices and maybe it's when the church has started getting square that you know maybe it's the square's fault that we're We've lost the circle. Well, it is really interesting that just to kind of jump to another theme that we seem to be touching on from time to time, the whole question of sin is something that people who are spiritually, let's say, struggling uh, mm-hmm. are, are continually being confronted with, you know, the the variety, like the slippery slope, I guess you could say. It's like, you know, first you're singing and dancing, the next thing you know, you're taking drugs and fornicating, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) that's pretty much like the story in the West. That was, or that was what the objection was, right? So when the devil's music, blues and rock and roll started hitting the little Christian towns, you know, everyone was like, this this is not going to go well, you know? (laughs) Yep. And, and and they were right. I mean, you have to admit that basically we saw a, 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 a dramatic rise in out of wedlock, uh, childbirth, you know, right. and and an increasingly, f- you know, number of failed marriages, you know, and I think a lot of that was because we kind of became a party nation. It was, you know, rock and roll. What does rock and roll mean? Rock and roll means fuck, fuck and leave town. Yeah. That's what it means. Hit it and quit and, it. <laughs> and, and that's what rock and roll bands did, you know? Yeah. If they were lucky. If they were lucky. That's what they, yeah, that was the big payoff. Because, you know, you're getting screwed on the record contract. <laughs> so, well, this is kind of like so one these, of the, the psychological um, uh, uh, I mean, just it? to finish that thought while you're yeah, putting you it go. together, the, the bands would get screwed by the companies that were promoting them and putting them on tour. And so they would screw the people who were in the audience. You know, like yeah. that was kind of the, the deal. The trickle you know? down effect. It was a trickle down <laughs> effect. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone gets screwed. Everyone gets screwed. In the end, they're probably better off for it, right? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a dose of reality. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you know, maybe it's just we think of it as reality because we've lost our sense of what's true and how life really works. So, you know, there's a cynical point of view where you can make a pretty good case and say, well, no, this is just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. You know, the powerful take advantage of the weak and everyone gets screwed. And if you're lucky, you learn how to enjoy it and you become a screwer too, right? Or there is this other idea that, that no, there is such a thing as, as justice and fairness. And you can have a society that operates on the basis of, let's say, consent, you know, and, uh, and where there's a, a degree of dignity to life, 
you know. Now, I don't know to the extent to which that latter formulation is something that's ever really fully existed, or is that just like a facade? Is that just like the storefront on, on a civilization that's just as decadent and depraved as every other civilization? I don't know. But, well, it's interesting, too, that those two kind of, you know, polar takes on things, like either, you know, going for, for the power card or going for the ethics card, you know, are, are almost both like kind of more like the seemingly conscious, you know, decisions where like to me, I find it so uh, redeeming or like, you know, that, yeah, that those conscious takes are both like terrifying to me. You know, because like there's nothing on the ethical side, you know, there's never heard that quote, there's nothing more terrifying than someone who's 100% convinced that they're changing the world for the good. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, shit. Yeah. Terrifying Uh, and dangerous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, and and a lot of people like will play both cards, uh, but you gotta, I mean, the thing that's uplifting or like redeeming to me is like, the understanding that like there's people who are completely unconscious of their relationships to both of those, whether or not they're engaging in them to any degree. And that like, there's, I don't know, to me, like just, you know, maybe it's cause I'm so overly an- analytical, but like <laughs> the fact that most humans are like just operating on a compulsion level is like almost like this, like saving grace of humanity. Like there's some level that like can't ever fucking just get with the program. Like it's not, it's not wired in there. You know, it's just, you know, like chaos will always just fucking come out and like, you know, whoever thinks they got the program down and implementing, like, you know, however gross and horrible and disgusting chaos might look, it's like it's still this like shake it up thing so that, you know, we don't end up with just like, you know, this conscious, uh, you know, ethical or power tripping kind of perspective on. There's so much in what you just said that I, I would love to try to explore a bit more. Yeah, sorry, it, I feel it, like I'm. No, I mean it's a the... it's really a, a difficult <laughs> thing to describe, you know. But uh, but the question of I mean, well, the the thing that you were kind of getting to, I think, at the end was this sense that no matter what impositions are placed like the plans of our global masters or whatever you want to call them, you know, like <laughs> the that, designers. That, yeah. Like the, the program getting with the program, right. Yeah. That they will always fail because there's this sort of fundamental, like most human beings are just going to kind of like, you know, transform into some other thing, you know? And I think there's like a lot of evidence to suggest that, that the idea of imposing order on things always changes the nature of the things that you're trying to impose your order upon. And it's right. like, I use this example of long-term capital management, which was a hedge fund that was very good at playing the market and it worked for a while. But what happened is that they were so good at it that they changed the market. It turned into a different beast and then it became like a massive crisis because <laughs> they lost so much of fuck. So and they ended up, I think, having to be bailed out or whatever, but Right now, we're facing one of the largest, as in my opinion, maybe maybe other people probably see it differently, but we're seeing one of the largest efforts to impose a new order on things. The digitization of the world. 
I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are involved in it. You could call it. You, I mean, a lot of people just saying it's the the Great Reset or whatever the hell the that Internet of Klaus Schwab things. is calling it. <laughs> the Internet of Things. Yeah, everyone's like. Not only do we all have a uh, one of these devices attached to us at all times. I just pointed to a cell phone. Oh yeah, smartphone, not just a cell phone. Uh, but also this passport thing, the COVID passport, where you're going to have to have you know, credentials in order to walk into a, uh, uh, what was the word? In order to walk into a storefront. Oh, the facade. The facade, yeah. yeah. In order to enter the facade, you need to have certain credentials now, right? Right. Yeah, so, I'm about to experience that in the raw when I go to. Yeah, for, I, maybe we should do a follow-up episode on... Uh, Good thing on I got vaccinated, right? Mike's Frisco experience. <laughs> what has Frisco turned into now? You know? Like, I know yeah. a few escapees, and like back in the day, I had some friends living there. You know, I would go every now and then. It was kind of a fun city there for a while. It was really right. an well, interesting place. But, I mean, it got it got to that, that same thing, what you're talking about in New York, where it was like... Glass and metal and clean and all that kind of stuff. And right after that, it was right right after Silicon Valley had turned it into their little like Google paradise. Uh huh. That's when it turned to literal human feces. That's basically right. The transition feel like, point uh, for me. Uh, my first experience in San Francisco was probably right on that turning point. Uh, for me, I was like uh, eighteen or nineteen. Uh, I just started college and realized that I'd really wanted to take that year off, convince the faculty that, you know, they, they would let me take a year off, which is kind of like you know, not very common. But I just, you know, decided to get a cheap van, live out of my van, go around the country, do the freaking hippie thing and play music on the street. But I, the only thing I knew about San Francisco was um, that it was kind of a unique city. And then it was one of the earliest cities to not be run by the mob because they had strong shipping unions. And uh, in the 60s, there was some kind of a flower child movement thing that happened. And, you know, it was, it was cool. And, you know, I didn't know a whole lot. I mean, I probably listened to some, like, Jefferson Airplane once or <laughs> twice and heard there from San Francisco. But then I was going through San Francisco, and uh, my van broke down there. And I was there for, like, two months and, like, uh, living, living on the uh, Buena Vista uh, Park, which is right near uh, Hate Street. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, nothing like I imagine was described in the 60s and 70s. And even the 90s was probably way cooler. But, you know, this would have been 2008. Uh, mm. you know, I remember playing a lot of money for gas. Um, bad time to be road tripping around the country if you're concerned about gas prices. But I, you know, coming from uh, the East Coast and uh, kind of more the police state, vibe it was so uplifting to like you know just i don't know there's just like a lot of like loafers you know that were like not creepy you know you, you know people that you look at and you're like oh shit drug addict you know it was right. like you know go sit down on this bench in the park and some dude like looks pretty chill you know just comes up and got like a duffel bag and just pulls out a beer and he's like yo man you want a beer I'm like, shit, why not? I'm not, like, working a job or anything today. And it's like, I mean, I've never been in a city where, like, a stranger comes up to you and is like, yo, you just want to, like, chill and, like, talk about some shit and, like, drink a beer? Like, it's, like, fucking 2 p.m. on 
I mean, it doesn't Sunday. happen hardly anywhere. Yeah, I don't country, even know right? if it's still so. like a thing. But and, <laughs> and I'd never been in a place where like you just walk down the street and people are like, "Yo, yo, trees, trees, bro, you want some trees? You know, drinking some reefer? <laughs> you know, it's like, man, usually gotta look for that shit. But you know, we're in completely different times now. Oh, New York used to be like that. Right, yeah, yeah. before uh, the, the police state thing. and the Before they cleaned up Times Square, <laughs> there were guys running around there constantly like, yeah. Yeah. Smoke, I, you'll smoke. Yeah, it's like it's, I, I got caught like right in the middle times where it just sucked, you know. It was like the police state was there, but like weed wasn't legal, and so now I'm going to feel like a criminal for the rest of my life just because like, you know, it was like not cool. <laughs> yeah, the whole legalization thing is something I have such mixed feelings about, I got to say. It's really, it, part of it is like hard to come to terms with having spent, you know, all that time seeing it as something that's essentially illegal, you know? and so, Yeah, or at least taboo, all, you know? Yeah, and, and But mostly you know, illegal. <laughs> well, but there's also this, this you know, I, I, I do think that historically speaking, civilizations that become overly indulgent in sense act, you know, sense engagements are on the downward path. So I do think that, that drugs are really problematic when it comes to having a functional society, right. you know, and, and like opening the doors of perception and what have you, it's like all very interesting on a personal level. But when it comes to, you know, people having a, an agreement about what's going on. I think, you know, it bursts the bubble of the fake world. That's what drugs do, you know? And like, basically, if every society is fundamentally a fake world that has its own kind of internal mechanism that allows it to run, well, mm -hmm. then, you know, that's one way of, of it becoming completely dysfunctional, which is maybe what's necessary at a certain point. Right, you it's could almost say that, like a corrective uh, element yeah. of like, you reach a certain point, uh, I think the part, you know, I definitely have mixed feelings too. And I'm someone who's, you know, habitually smoked marijuana since I was like 16 years old. Mm. And I took maybe like one year off and, you know, I got mixed feelings. Of course I use it as medicine, but like probably more of the time it's like I use it as a, you know, escape, uh, more of like abusive kind of thing. And, and I've thought about my struggle and I'm like pretty conscious of my struggle and I, I didn't grow up around hardly anybody who, you know, smoked weed. Um, hmm. You know, I, of course, everyone's got the weird uncle. You know, I had the weird uncle who smoked weed. And, <laughs> you know, he helped me out early on. But, you know, I mean, shit, he was the first person I saw who just, like, dropped out of life and went and, like, lived in a cabin and, like, huh. look at me now. I mean, last time I saw him, he's like, I'm the one who fucked you up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm like, yeah, and you're proud of it too, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. But, uh, but yeah, when I think about like, you know, how hard it was to like score weed, you know, half of it was like the adventure, you know, early on. And then, uh, you know, it's so, so weird that, uh, you know, I think it's a great thing that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, higher quality, it's a commodity good now, you, you test things, make sure it's not pesticides, and like, you know, you know, if you go to dispensary, you're not going to get weed flakes with PCP, or like, right. you know, weird shit in there, you yep. never know what happened, and like, I definitely smoked some fucking sketchy ass shit, 
you know, especially oh, you know, East we, Coast cities. And yeah, we bought a few bags of oregano when we were kids, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is not a great smoke. You oh know? no, no, it's a headache and a half. <laughs> but uh, but I guess the commodity thing really. I mean, people talk about it being a gateway drug, and I'm like, yeah, it's a gateway drug, but it's also a gateway plant, man. Like, cause you know, I remember growing weed in the little, you know. Little teeny section of woods in the like, you know, drainage area in between some suburban houses, and um, you know, a pathetic amount that I harvested off this thing that was in almost completely all shade. But like, hmm. it was like, holy shit! I just growed this, I just grew this thing that like I usually would have to like, you know, make some phone calls, meet up with some shady ass people that sketched me out, and like, you know, I just didn't like their energy and shit, and. And it's like, oh, man, I just provided for myself. Hmm. And it was like, I was like, oh, man, like food. Like you can do this with food and shit too. And like, hmm. and like the process was cool. It wasn't just like, okay, I just produced commodity good and like I like that shit. It was like, right. oh, man, I'm interacting with this cool living plant. Hmm. Um, you know, and it, it that was my gateway to like growing plants and like, Wow, you know, here I am in Southern yeah. Oregon. I've mostly been, you know, kind of plugging in and out of the organic farming world, right? Native. Uh, it seems like yeah, you try to stay away from the the weed scene as much yeah, as possible, I mean, right? But like, you're really interested in in the plant world, right? There's large, enough, you know. There's yeah. enough other people who are like just so psyched on weed, and it's cute as fuck to me, you know. In in some hmm. instances where it's just like you know, bro, it's just like fuck yeah dude this shit is amazing (laughs) the fucking shit and like you know people been like you know just loving this plant for so long continuing the lineage and like i I think i know the guy who you're doing right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's like 10 of them on this road (laughs) there are people who are just super and it's so real that that's really nice to see because there are there are a whole bunch of different types and those probably are a minority i think they are yeah you know at least around here um, cause it is like a business thing and it's, that's the weird thing is like, well, the thing that worries me is the cartels that that's, well, it seems like, I mean, the County has been fucking plowing through some shit this year. Our County has been, but not Josephine. I heard Josephine's been, been on some shit. Really? Uh, Williams, uh, got a huge scene at the end of, uh, was it Browns road or uh, Panther Gulch. When was that? Uh, this spring. They bulldozed a huge operation with like twenty greenhouses. Also out in Cape huh. Junction, huh. Um, and like, you know, I I don't I don't think I know enough about the cartel to have like a really strong opinion on their. Well, I mean, thing, there's a, there's a bunch know? of different ones that are operating, as I understand right. it. It's just like an umbrella word for like the underground. I, again, it's like you know, full full of mixed feelings because. You know, when I moved out here, I, I just can I segue into like a personal story that's kind of a little bit long. You can segue into whatever the hell right, you want. All right. right. Okay. So, like, <laughs> I move out to Oregon. You know, I'm interested in organic farming, all that stuff, and spend a season with my best friend who came out here with me. And we're like, you know, working between two small, diverse uh, kind of family farm uh, operations, doing animals, a little bit of veggies. And, and then I go back east to, I ended up at a party my, my buddy threw and my, my high school sweetheart's there and hadn't seen her in a long time. I'm horrible. Keep in contact with 
pretty much everybody in my life. And so it was like this really awesome connecting point. And then, you know, she's been at art school, which, you know, I had dropped out of art school to go do the farming thing. And, um, you know, she kind of made this like jab at me where she's like, ah, why don't you just move down to California and like grow weed like everyone else I went to school with, you know? And it was kind of like, you know, as much as I love that plant, um, I was kind of like, you know, I really am trying not to get distracted. You know, there's there's plenty of other people who are passionate about that shit. I kind of want to stick with the food thing. And like, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, that ethical drive as a young person. We're like, oh, I'm going to do the thing to change the world. You know, our food system's like just fucking in tatters. That's like the base of society. We're in denial of the fact that we are still an agricultural society and it's like small scale ethical farming. That's what's up. And like, not really trying to make fun of that because it's still a reality. But, um, you know, sometimes I think I'm more on the side of like the younger perspective where they're like yeah it's fucked and like you're not gonna fix it so why try (laughs) but shit in my experience it's more like the it's the real thing you know it's not about the like ethics and trying to change change reality it's more like hey how can i have experiences that feel real Hmm. to me and real to share with the people in my life um Right, in some sense, having a, a a feeling of forward movement that things are developing, understanding is deepening. It's mm-hmm. a, this is an enriching path, even if it's not going to be profitable. You know, that's certainly right the way I've viewed it. You know, and I guess the idea of saving the world is, you know, it's a nice pipe dream, but don't be don't be a martyr. Don't be super. <sighs> I mean, no one's going to save the world. Right, it has its own inexorable course to it, <sighs> and like. You know, there were people way smarter than we are a hundred years ago, <laughs> you oh, know, who yeah. saw it pretty clearly. So it it doesn't seem like that's realistic at all. There may be perhaps a massive cataclysm after which there might be a new opportunity. <laughs> right. But yeah, until skills could, you know, eventually be you know, it's, valued by greater society, but it's not impossible, you know. Um, but uh, but in as things stand in the present system, I don't see how it could be reformed in a, in a meaningful way that would actually address the issues that we're concerned yeah, about. Yeah, and I, I've you know continually stepped back from you know particularly market gardening and and uh, farmers markets and the CSA thing because you know I kind of hit a point where I'm like you know what this is like. This is real, but like, you know, anything on an even small scale industrial scale is like industrial. And like, I don't know, like if I was actually involved in like the farmer's market and, you know, and you're like selling to people and experiencing their gratitude, like in person, it'd be different. But, you know, like the last farm I was working on. Uh, you know, regularly it was like I was providing for a CSA and like we'd pack the CSA boxes and, you know, I kind of hit a point where it's like, you know, I personally do not know any of these people. These are like, you know, probably, you know, a bunch of young professionals, like, you know, doctors and, uh, you know, educated people who like have some, uh, you know, ethics and, and enough income to like act on them. And, um, you know, the reality is that most of these people are throwing half of this into the compost if they have a compost 
at home because they don't have time to cook this shit. They're like young professionals. They have careers and shit. And like, I don't know them. And like, I don't see the appreciation. And like, I'm sure they're great people. But like, I kind of got to a point where I was like, I want to grow food for people I know, Hmm. you know, or like just take a break for a while. You know, I've kind of segued to like more of the native restoration stuff. But uh, again, I'm segueing like crazy. So getting back <laughs> to my... That's what we do here on the Assembly of Silence. Right. Uh, well, you know, that conversation I had with my, my high school sweetheart, it kind of makes this jab, and it was kind of like a, a very uh, fortuitous because the following season, you know, continuing my education in the uh, small-scale farming world, you know, at that point, I was more focused on organic, which, you know, isn't as uh, relevant to me uh, personally these days. Again, mm. I mean, like not certified organic. Um, I think organic practices are, are more ideal, but I'm not a purist. Um, but the ir- irony was the next season, you know, we moved down here to Southern Oregon to work on a vegetable seed farm. Just happens the town I moved to has the highest per capita card holders for growing marijuana of any town in the entire state. And uh, I find myself in like, you know, I thought that was just like Northern California scene, but Hmm. you know, I'm in like this sea of like small scale pot growers, which is kind of cool because, you know, it seems like Northern California, it's more that large scale uh, thing and it's been going on longer. Whereas like, you know, Williams, you know, when I moved there, it was like, you know, most people was like, ah, oh, we got like, you know, eight to 16 plants and we're just like a family, you know, raising kids and like, we like playing music and like doing stuff that like doesn't make you money. And it's cool that we can like work from home and like really, you know, you know, work really hard for like two months in the fall, like, you know, processing this, you know, mm-hmm. sacred plant and, you know, getting the medicine to the people. And, um, you know, at first it was like, well, man, this perspective is way different than like, yo, I'm trying to score some drugs <laughs> and, and seeing like what people were doing with that money. It wasn't like the like drug dealer, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to get some fucking bling, you know, nothing wrong with that. Gold chains way more real than investing in the stock market in my book. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, it was just like really uplifting to see like, oh, whoa, you know, these people aren't trying to get rich. They're just trying not to be like sucked into the career system. And they're like, you know, making cool music and like, you know, custom tie dye T-shirts and, you know, just all the wacky stuff that like, you know. So where is it at now? Into. I mean, it's it's changed now, right? Yeah. I mean, with the advent of uh, legalization and industrialization, you know, most of those people who are sticking with it are like, you know, it looks way more like a career path now. Where like, that's your job and like, you got to grow, you know. Way more. Way more. Yeah. I mean, like. So with the hemp thing, it's like acres. Yeah. And like, you know, a family can't handle, you know, monitoring acres. You got to like, you're in the ag world now. You got to like hire seasonal help and like seasonal help is affordable, which is like, you know, increasingly like migrant workers or, you yep. know, just underpaid, you know, largely people of color who, you know, are citizens of the states, but, you know, are more in the ag world and. Well, that's one of the concerns about the uh, 
about the cartels is that they're basically using slave labor. Right. And I've heard some pretty nasty stories about that. And that's but I cannot verify whether they're true. Uh, not appreciate the presence. Yeah, uh, I think there's a bunch of reasons to be concerned about that. Yeah. yeah. It also seems like uh, a lot of the criticism uh, is centered around like having no ethics in regards to like pesticides, right. choice of um, uh, well, it seems like one of the themes that we keep kind of running up against here is this question of the extent to which one can reasonably integrate ethics into any operation, including right. one's own life. Yeah, because you, know? you got to make compromises <laughs> at every sector, and and the more the greater society kind of like focuses on production of commodity goods, the more you just constantly have to compromise the ethics <laughs> in order to like fucking stay afloat. Um, you know the song Grindstone Cowboy? <laughs> no. <laughs> Glenn Campbell? R Rhinestone or Grindstone? Rhinestone. Rhinestone Cowboy. I can't remember why it came up the other day, but Shang and I looked up the the lyrics, and and it's like an incredibly cynical song. It has this like really great chorus hook that's very uplifting, I guess you could say. Uh -huh. So it feels like a song that's kind of triumphant in sort of a weird, tawdry way. But uh, Wait, what does tawdry mean? Like kind of cheap, cheap. you know, like and like cheesy. rhinestones. Rhinestones are fake diamonds or whatever, you know. Right. Like, so like a rhin Yeah, it's sort of <laughs> like an Elvis suit or something like mm -hmm. that. That's basically, so the star who's, you know, Tinseltown, Tinseltown type of deal. And there's a line in it where he says, there'll be a load of compromising on the road to my horizon. Something like that. <laughs> it's a terrible rhyme. Um, but but it's, it's the it's the almost rhymes that are better. I guess so, opinion, yeah. You know? <laughs> like, it's like, it's if, a, you're, if you're like a spot on rhyme, then it's like, oh, shit, that's just predictable. That's true. <laughs> you got you to gotta kind of push things one direction or another. But it, I wasn't really mentioning it for its poetic content. Right, sorry. <laughs> it was more like, you know, this notion of the compromise and as, uh, as an essential part of the life path in order to make it one way or another. Right. Sort of. And, you know, that also, I think, comes back to the, the religious question, like... The religious town is less likely to do business in like the broadest sense of the term because they won't compromise on certain things. They have ethical principles that they would hold to. And that is sort of the, you know, conservative perspective. It's something that uh, is built into some of the basic concepts of law and justice and, and that sort of thing. And the, the terrible thing about the slippery slope that we're on is that all of the things that make for a world that isn't the worst case scenario are gradually being eroded. You know, and you end up with a society that's fundamentally gangster criminal when like all of the ethical principles have been compromised. And I think we, we have been sliding down that slope for a long time now. And it's hard to say whether we ever weren't already completely decadent. You know, is it just a facade and a myth that there was, that we had a law-abiding, God-fearing God nation? I mean, I think on some level, it's like always a matter of percentages, you know, there's, there's, uh, but it's like there's the... currents within society. And so there are people who still abide by a set of 
you know, principles on some way or another. Uh-huh. Different principles depending upon what they believe in. But, you know, if you believe in the law or if you believe in God's law or there's a wide range of other things that one can believe in. But having a set of principles is a pretty fundamental thing to having, I think, a, a coherent life and and having a coherent society where people just aren't screwing each other over all the time. Right. And so that's the that's the price that we've paid for a lot of the indulgence in in the liberties in this country well around the world yeah it's interesting talking about like the myth of the ethics that this country was founded on uh because like uh recently i was was reading uh you know kind of all-in-one history of the united states i think jill lapore might have been the name of the the woman who wrote the the (laughs) book and is uh really phenomenal just how much she touched on in the book but uh uh, I was really surprised to find out that the uh, One Nation Under God thing on the dollar bill, that didn't exist until like the 1920s or something with the temperance movement or maybe like late 1800s. But it was a later development. And they actually say that the time that uh, the Declaration of Independence was written was one of the most secular times in American history. Hmm. And that uh, really these guys were high on like the... Uh, you know, Roman and Greek uh, formation of the republics. And it was the ethics were really not that concerned with religious uh, uh, qualities per se, so much as like uh, you know, the, the people. But then again, you know, these people's or the general consensus amongst the elite of who was a person, you know, was pretty weird. Right. All right, I'm going to um, kick her out so that we can... Hey, as go. was, you know, get, in get, Rome get, and get, Greece. Get, well, apparently, if, if I understand correctly, they were high not only on some of the ideas from the classic world, but um, they were also high on hemp. Oh, <laughs> right? yeah. Totally, but I, it didn't have the kick that it has now. No, it was a totally different. Um, yeah, it was. It was way yeah. chiller. You could still, you could still talk about politics after you smoked weed. Do <laughs> <laughs> you mind if I just say one more thing no, please, about yeah. the uh, for, for founding forefathers? This is another, yeah, yeah, yeah. another book I read recently that, uh, of course, like, I'm not going to remember the author's name, but it was a book on the. Uh, the history of the development of waterways in the United States and the <laughs> general sentiment that the author expressed uh, was that the gatherings that led up to the Declaration of Independence would have never happened if George Washington wasn't trying to establish a canal system on the Potomac for, uh, you know, commercial business reasons and that uh, he couldn't get uh, Maryland and Virginia to agree on, you know, whatever licenses he needed to put in this canal system for his own personal profit. And so he wanted to, like, make a national government so that he could bypass the states or at least come to some compromise more than they had uh, figured out on their own. Interesting. And so that... So that wouldn't have even involved, like, interference from the crown or anything. It was just the 
lack of willingness on the part of different states to, yeah. to play ball. Yeah, they, they weren't willing to like... <laughs> well, you, you know, never know what's going to inspire, you know, <laughs> change. It's not always necessarily the most noble or ethical consideration, right? And, you know, we could say that, well, maybe that was a foretelling of what this nation would be. <laughs> right. Well, when you're talking about the uh, ethics versus uh, kind of the power trip, in my mind, I'm kind of like, well... Maybe there's the the ethics of power. Mm. You know, that's its own like category of of ethics is like the world as is. Like, what can you do? Like, where's the, you know? Well, that would be more of like a pragmatic kind of maybe more real politics, like the physics of power, right? Something along those lines. But that it uh, it has its own set of logical kind of uh, operations that you can't pretend are otherwise. Right. It's it's like uh, contains an ethics of its own. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the word ethics, but maybe I would have to. We'd have to explore the, the oh, word yeah. ethics. But we right. we did just have people returning to the space here. Yeah, and they're, yeah. Let's, they're doing let's a great job up. of being quiet. But <laughs> one of the things that is wonderful about doing an in-person Assembly of Silence episode is that we have the option to do what uh, Judah and I call the Assembly of Silence moment which uh, involves creating atmospheric noises uh, to signal that the conversation has reached its uh, end point and we throw it into a little bit of reverb and that's the way we ride it out here. What do you say? for listening we look forward to serving you again soon in the meantime remember turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home